0: I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm the host of the Jewish History Matters podcast. Before we get into this episode, I want to take a moment to let you know that we've launched a fundraising drive for the podcast for the month of November. These days, when there are no in-person events on campuses or in the wider community, it's more important than ever to foster the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. And I've just been so thrilled to be able to do this with this project. With over 55 episodes and counting, we've reached tens of thousands of people with our message about the ways history matters. In October 2020 alone, we had almost 6,000 total downloads, nearly double of a year ago. And we've accomplished this with the support Of people like you, people who've subscribed to the podcast and shared it, people who've listened in and liked it on social media, and people who've offered their support and sustained this initiative. Working with the University of Texas at Austin, where I'm currently based, we've launched a charitable fundraising campaign to support the project, to fund the current season and look forward towards the future. I hope you'll consider offering support to make sure we can continue to produce great episodes like this one. The easiest way to get to the campaign is to go to jewishhistory.fm contribute, which will take you to our crowdfunding site at UT. I want to thank you so much for your support of the podcast. By listening in, by telling your friends about it, and by supporting it financially, if you're able. I hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to sharing more with you in the future. Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Noam Siena to talk about gender and sexuality across the arc of Jewish history, which he highlighted in his book, A Rainbow Thread, an anthology of queer Jewish texts. From the first century to 1969. It's a fantastic book and a great jumping off point for our conversation about why the history of gender and sexuality matters and how we can see LGBTQ histories as a rainbow thread that runs across Jewish history as a whole. Noam Siena is a historian of Jewish culture in the medieval and early modern periods focusing on the Sephardi world. He received his Ph.D. in Jewish history and museum studies at the University of Minnesota in 2020, and he currently teaches history and Middle Eastern studies at the University of St. Thomas. His first book, A Rainbow Thread, an anthology of queer Jewish texts from the first century to 1969, was published in 2019. And it was awarded both the Reference Award from the Association of Jewish Libraries and the Anthology Award from the Lambda Literary Association. I hope you enjoy listening into this conversation as we consider what it means to bring new voices into the history of the Jews and how Jewish history can be in conversation with the broader field of queer studies. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Noam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this uh, episode, which I think is going to be really fantastic because I think that this is just such a phenomenal book, this anthology of sources on queer Jewish history, as it were. I'm really struck by the argument of the book, which is to say that, that in some ways, some people will say, well, it's a collection of sources. It doesn't really have an argument. But I do think that it has a point, which is that we can see, drawing from the title, a rainbow thread that runs throughout Jewish history. That there are LGBTQ people um, and queer history that runs throughout the varied experiences of the Jews. I was hoping that maybe you could get us started out by talking about what this idea of a rainbow thread means and what it means to you.
1: I think you're absolutely right that the thread imagery is um, meant to point to a kind of continuity, that there is some thread, as it were, that runs through Jewish history and connects our experiences to the experiences of people in the past. And what I like about the idea of the rainbow thread is that the rainbow is not only a symbol of contemporary LGBTQ community, but it's also a symbol of diversity and of multiplicity, right? The rainbow is a kind of splitting of light into these multiple facets. And so the The idea of the rainbow thread to me is, that, is trying to balance, which is really the, the story of the book as a whole, trying to balance between recognizing continuity on the one hand and recognizing diversity and non-continuity on the other hand. So I don't want to say, oh, being a, a gay Jew or being a trans Jew or being a member of the LGBTQ community today is exactly the same as it was 50 or 100 or 500 or 1,000 years ago. So obviously there are huge differences in how people thought about themselves, in the kinds of reactions people had to each other and to themselves, the kinds of ways people thought about gender and sexuality have changed so much over the last, even just over the last 50 years, never mind 100 or, or 200 or 500 years. So, you know, for me, I take a certain comfort in feeling connected to the past in that way, and also feel a kind of challenge. You know, if the past is different in these ways from the present, what can I learn from that? And how can I draw on those differences to move
0: forward in new ways? So then what is the importance here in making this intervention of thinking about the way in which there have been LGBTQ people throughout Jewish history. Like you said, it creates a connection between people today and the Jewish past in a way that perhaps people did not necessarily think about previously.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of surprises uh, in the book, and there were a lot of surprises to me to learn, you know, just how deeply questions around gender and sexuality are interwoven into Every aspect of the study of Jewish history, you know, in that sense, something that this book shows is everybody should be thinking about gender and sexuality. You know, not just people who are working in the field of queer history or queer studies, but you know, if you're a scholar of Kabbalah, you should be thinking about gender and sexuality, and if you're a scholar of Jewish migration, you should be thinking about gender and sexuality, and if you're a scholar of rabbinic uh, literature, or if you're a scholar of American Jewish politics. And on and on and on.
0: When you say that the questions of gender and sexuality uh, contribute to our understanding of Jewish history, what is it about these issues that animate our understanding of the history of the Jews?
1: Well, they're, they're so closely tied up in people's lived experiences. So they are central to how people move through the world and how they encounter others and how they think about themselves. It is a way of really getting to something which is often very elusive personal experience. I mean, for me as a Jewish historian, the question that I'm always trying to answer is, what did it mean to be a Jew in this particular time or place? What did it feel like? What was that experience? So getting to that level is often very difficult and thinking about, you know, how people lived in their own bodies and how people encountered each other in very immediate ways, even in physical ways, gets us there very quickly, which is really exciting. And it also um, draws our attention to experiences that have been pushed to the margins. Many of the stories in this book are stories of people who lived in one way or another, on the margins of the Jewish community or who were pushed to the margins of the Jewish community or whose stories were in some ways pushed out of the narrative. So bringing these stories back in and considering them makes our understanding of the Jewish past richer and also more complicated, which I think is a project that to me is very exciting because... A richer and more complicated story is a more honest story.
0: I think what you're pointing to here is a really important development that we can talk about in Jewish studies or within historical research as a whole, that over and over again, we see this project of trying to bring people into the story that have previously been left out. So what does that mean to you in terms of thinking about this question of of queer history or queer studies? In terms of Jewish studies, how is it that bringing this history, bringing this perspective to thinking about Jewish history, helps to illuminate the bigger picture of what's going on? What does it change? What does it add to this broader cultural matrix that we are thinking about and and looking at?
1: I think the bottom line is that it's is that it's more honest. It's a more accurate picture. You know, this goes back to. Um, the insights of feminist historians and scholars back in the 60s and 70s who who were reacting against uh, a narrative of Jewish history, which was written by and about and centered on the stories of men. You know, and people say, well, well, why do we have to pay attention to Jewish women's history and Jewish women's stories? Because it's part of Jewish history. And if your story of Jewish history is only about men, you're missing half the story. So what scholars and theologians and and writers like, Judith Plaskow and um, Rachel Adler and uh, my own mother, I should say, Rabbi Elise Goldstein, um, you know, these rabbis and, and historians and writers said, all this time you thought you were studying Jewish history. You were actually only studying Jewish men's history. And we need to go back and rethink the conclusions that we've drawn on the basis of a very narrowed and imperfect selection of, of sources. I think this is, you know, in some ways, the continuation of that project. And it and it certainly stands on its shoulders. Like, there's no way that I could have done this work without the decades of work that's been done already in the field of Jewish studies, specifically, and generally in the field of history, that are, are saying we need to look for new kinds of sources. We need to look for new voices. We need to look for Ways that you know the historiography has contributed to the silencing of these narratives. It's a hugely important project.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely, I agree one hundred percent. And I think um, that something that you said here is really critical, which is that looking at people who have been left out of history forces us to reevaluate the conclusions that we might draw. And so, part of what I'm interested in diving into here even deeper is what is it about queer history. That perhaps forces us, as you said, to reevaluate our conclusions or to reevaluate our assumptions. How is it, like you said, building on the history of women's and gender studies over the past half century or so? What is it about this aspect of Jewish history that you're dealing with in this book and in your broader work that is leading us in new directions, leading us towards a new perspective?
1: I think that there has been an assumption in the past that while individual jews like anybody else throughout history have felt themselves let's say drawn to someone of the same sex or interested in the idea of transitioning genders that experience whether or not it happened you know on a large scale or a small scale was confined to each individual that it didn't form an actual part of Jewish history, but it was just like this is the, this is the attitude that I encountered. You know, even when I first came out and was looking for a, a, a place for myself in the chain of Jewish tradition, that you know, what does it mean to be a queer Jew or a gay Jew or trans or lesbian or whatever Jew? I, I was met with a kind of silence. I was met with like, well, you just have to figure it out yourself. Like. You know completely on your own, and what I discovered in in the process of doing this research is that, in all of these different ways, experiences that are familiar to me as a queer person are actually integral to what I knew already of the Jewish story. Let me give you an example. The homoerotic Hebrew poetry of medieval Spain is deeply inextricably interwoven with the development of the Hebrew language in the Middle Ages, taking biblical and rabbinic Hebrew phrases and vocabulary and chopping them up and and reassembling them to create this new poetic language. You can't separate it from the Jewish textual tradition. And at the same time, it is rooted in an experience of homoerotic desire, which is intimately familiar to me as a queer person. This is not an argument about the individual experience, like whether Judah Halevi did or did not have erotic encounters with other men. Like I can't prove that, and I'm less interested in that. Than in what you're saying, which is reckoning with the fact that the homoerotic desires expressed in Yehuda Halevi's poetry are actually central to understanding the development of medieval Jewish culture and civilization. So it's like, okay, well, then I can't understand Jewish life without understanding what it means to articulate homoerotic desire in a Jewish language literally and figuratively.
0: One of the really interesting things that you can see looking at this book, I think that there's a certain tension here because on the one hand, we're talking about how this process of thinking about LGBTQ history is unearthing something that people have not paid attention to as much up until recently. And at the same time, you're talking about the way in which it is intrinsic to thinking about Jewish history to Jewish experiences uh, as a whole. And I'm just really struck, again, Just even just looking at the table of contents, that the kinds of sources that you have here, it's not like you are unearthing totally unknown sources, but in many ways you are recontextualizing them. And I just think that here, you're looking at so many sources that we've seen before, or we've seen these people before. Again, just looking at table of contents, uh, you've got here Philo, you've got here so many things from the Talmud, right? Let alone like you said the the poetry of medieval Spain this is a major source people have looked at you know even just more recently uh, Emma Lazarus uh, and so on and i just think it's so interesting the way that these issues are in some ways hiding in plain sight
1: yeah yeah and i think i think you're absolutely right and i i tried to balance as i was selecting and and i would say maybe even curating the texts in this book i tried very hard to balance exactly between these positions between presenting old sources in new ways and presenting new sources that were not included in previous tellings of Jewish history, you know, trying to also bridge those and draw connections between new sources and and, and old sources. So, you know, you're right. The Talmud is, you know, I'm not going to discover anything new that nobody has ever seen before. But I do think that there are ways to read Midrash or Talmudic passages, in the light of other texts that highlights questions or themes that were maybe not sufficiently acknowledged or recognized when there was a more limited set of eyes looking at those texts, so um the Androgynous, for example, is a a category of sex that is discussed in the Talmud. You know, in the Talmud, it's discussed as a kind of theoretical, hypothetical idea. Like, what if there were someone who was both male and female at the same time? How would we then apply? certain laws which are dependent on gender categories of sex. So, you know, that's not a new text. Anybody who's read the Mishnah has known that. But when we come back to this text and start to look at it through the lens of the long history of people who have found themselves outside of the binary of male or female, whether that is people we would understand today as intersex, people we would understand as transgender or transsexual or non-binary. And when we read that text in the light of the Greco-Roman understandings of gender and sexuality, such as, for example, the androgynos, which is a Greek word, but when Greek sources talk about the androgynos, including Greek Jewish sources like Philo, as you just mentioned, When Philo talks about uh, the androgynos, he's not talking about what the Mishnah understands as the androgynos, but he's talking about someone who is born in a male body, but who participates in sexual encounters with other men and who presents themselves in ways which go against the standard roles assigned to men in that society. And it's something that carries immense amounts of shame. And, uh, uh, you know, for Philo, of course, he's terribly condemnatory of this. But when we start to to zoom out and look at this larger picture, then we are going to reread the text in the Mishnah in new ways. It's not hypothetical anymore. Now we're thinking about how does this relate to the lived experience of actual people who might have found themselves in this category?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what is going on here, again, is that it's highlighting the way in which the whole issue of gender and sexuality, it's not modern, right? It's not new by any means, but it's something that runs throughout Jewish history. And the fact that people are talking about it throughout really just indicates this. Um, They haven't interrogated these sources in the way of thinking, was this an actual lived experience?
1: Yeah, Maimonides is a great example of that. In the Mishneh Torah, in his his legal code, he talks about sexual relations between women. And he's drawing on the Talmud, which in its time had talked about sexual relations between women. But he adds, just at the very end, just one sentence that he says, a man should be careful to be strict with his wife regarding this matter, meaning the prohibition, and prevent the women who are known for this to enter his house to join her, meaning his wife, and to prevent her from going out to join them. In other words, in Maimonides' own time, there were women who were known for this behavior, who were known for sexual relationships with other women. He says it explicitly, women who are known for this. So in the process of legislating against it, what he's done is actually preserve for us the record of Jewish women in medieval Egypt who were known... For their relations with other women. Now, that raises a whole new set of questions about what does that mean? How did they understand themselves? What was their place in the Jewish community? How did they find each other? What words did they have for themselves? All of those questions are much more interesting to me than um, the legal status that Maimonides is trying to establish here. So it's a, a kind of reading against the grain or a a reading between the lines, but it gets us to some really interesting places.
0: Yeah, so I want to take that further. Looking at the history of LGBTQ people throughout Jewish history, from ancient times up until the present, um, it shows that they were there. Okay, well, this is an important first step. And I think that as you mentioned before, um, that for a lot of people, this is very personally empowering to understand that they, you know, are, are not New, right? That they have a connection with the Jewish past or just with history in general. But I think that one of the other things that you are calling on us to do is to reinterrogate this history in new ways that we might think of a source as legal, right? Or legalistic uh, in terms of its topic, but actually it tells us different things. And so, again, looking at the kinds of sources that you have here, which are really calling on us as readers, as students of Jewish history, to reevaluate um, what are, in some cases, canonical sources. You know, what do we think we get out of this? Why does it matter in terms of how we understand Jewish history as well as its broader context to look at Jewish history from this perspective or from this light? You know, in addition to this question of, yes, these people are there, you know, what is the next step in terms of why it matters?
1: Why does studying any kind of history matter? It's not just to say there were people in the past. They did X, Y, and Z. Like, that's interesting. And if you feel connected to them because they share some identity with you, then you might be personally moved. But in my understanding of history, and I'm drawing here particularly on queer historians, um, I'm thinking especially of uh, José Esteban Munoz uh, and Carolyn Dinshaw, who say the point of excavating history, and in particular marginalized or erased history, is to recover ways in which the past can help us build a future. What is interesting to me about this project is that it suggests a multiplicity of directions for a queer Jewish future. I don't know if I am the one to say where I think that future is going, I think we need all of these pieces to help figure it out. Like we all need access to all of these pieces to help figure it out. And because of my position as a historian, I felt like giving people access to these pieces of history is sort of the best thing I can do at this moment to kind of help us as, as a whole, us meaning Jewish historians, us meaning queer Jews, us meaning historians, Jews in general, you know, think more
0: deeply about this. You've said a lot about the way in which looking at queer history or queer studies helps us to understand Jewish history better by including people who have been traditionally left out of the narrative or understanding texts in a new light, but vice versa. How is it that the Jewish side of the story helps us to think in a wider way about the history of gender and sexuality, broadly speaking? Is there something about this history within Jewish history or or within Jewish studies that contributes to a broader thinking about gender and sexuality? You know, it's not just that you're drawing on gender and sexuality issues and questions to ask those same questions about the Jews, but I think that perhaps looking at the Jews also has something to add back in terms of that conversation as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that For many scholars, uh, especially, you know, in the past few decades who were writing about LGBTQ history, Jewishness was not a very interesting category to interrogate. And so it was often kind of shoved in the footnotes or like incidental, like, oh, somebody happened to be Jewish. Like it was it was just like they, they were born to Jewish parents. So they were Jewish. But, you know, I'm thinking in particular of the mid-20th century and a lot of the activism and theory and writing and arguing and struggle to build the base for civil rights for LGBTQ people in the United States. The people who were involved in that struggle who were Jewish, their Jewishness is usually not recognized as central to that story and they themselves may not have acknowledged Jewishness as being central to their story so it's sometimes mentioned oh so and so you know happened to be Jewish but when i look at them in the larger context of of jewish history that's presented in this book then i start to see there are really important continuities that link that particular person to the story of our understanding of, you know, what it means to be Jewish. And that as we go farther back in history, there are people for whom being Jewish and their relationship to the Jewish community was as much an integral part of their identity as their understanding of their own sexuality or gender. Like we can't pull these things apart. I think in the past, people have tried, especially in LGBTQ history and in queer studies, there, there was an attempt to try and sort of extract the most salient part of someone's identity was the fact that they were gay or the fact that they were lesbian. And the fact that they were Jewish was sort of incidental. And what I'm trying to say is all of these things are intertwined. They're, they're, there's not one facet that is more essential and one facet that's more incidental. What it does is it undermines the assumption, which is so common inside and outside of the LGBTQ community, that religion and gender or sexuality are inherently in conflict. Meaning that, you know, to be Jewish and to be trans or queer or non-binary is inherently a contradiction. And therefore, those two identities are inherently in conflict and that each individual has to resolve that conflict that's the assumption that undergirds so much of how people think about lgbtq identities and i think that is an unproductive assumption i think that's an assumption that is i mean it may be true for some people but it's not it's not inherent and it's not a universal truth so I don't think we have to assume that Jewishness is inherently in contradiction to LGBTQ identity.
0: So I think this is huge. I, I want to interrogate this a little bit more because it really strikes me that religious texts, Jewish as well as non- jewish, have for so many centuries been opposed to homosexual relationships, uh, you know to LGBTQ identities and so on and so forth, that leads many people not only to reject religion but to say that these two things are totally separate from each other and i think that part of what you're talking about here is that they, they aren't always bifurcated or separated from each other
1: you know i think for example a lot of people would say well obviously now we understand the you know the possibilities for lgbtq jewish life but you know that couldn't have existed 100 or 200 or 500 years ago and I think you know some of the texts in this book challenge that because they demonstrate how people were able to construct a life for themselves as, again, even if they didn't have the vocabulary for it, but as a gay person or trans person or queer person in a Jewish context, sometimes even in ways that seem more integrated than is true of some communities today. So that's a real challenge, I think, for, for people to read this book and think, wow, this really doesn't fit with, with what I assumed the past looked like.
0: Yeah, you are fundamentally saying that there is not a competition between, say, Jewish identity or Jewish religious practice and the history of, of LGBTQ people.
1: Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. The assumption that Jewish identity is primarily a religious identity is already something that we might want to challenge as being overly reductive and and then even if it is a religious identity to say that it's therefore inherently in conflict with someone's gender or sexuality being outside the normative binary assumption of cisgender and heterosexual look i'll tell you a personal story you know when i lived in israel You know, I would walk around and I would often wear a rainbow kippah. Almost every day, people would come up to me and demand that I remove my kippah. And I would say it was about equally split between religious, you know, what I would call Haredim or or Datiim, religious Israelis and secular Israelis who were equally upset that I was confusing the boundaries, that I was blurring the boundaries between what they saw as two completely distinct uh, realms of life. You know, I had a, a guy come up to me and say, either you can be gay or you can be religious, but you have to choose one. And it's unacceptable that you think you can go around trying to be both at the same time. And this was a secular guy saying this to me, right? Someone who said, look, I've made my choice I'm living in the secular world. You don't get to have one foot, you know, in each category. I wish I could have explained to him, look, I don't, I don't see these as being mutually exclusive categories. You know, in the context of a street conversation, you can't really do that. But I, I'm hoping that this book is trying to to bring some of that complexity to the conversation.
0: But when you're thinking about this division, right, this imposed division between religion on the one hand and gender and sexuality on the other, to what extent do you think that this historical perspective that you're bringing to it can help to inform contemporary discussions, whether it's a conversation on the street or something more in-depth, more serious? You know, how is it that that historical perspective can inform the discourse and the conversation about gender and sexuality and religion today? And vice versa, how is it that those kind of conversations can inform how we understand the history. How do these two things interplay with each other?
1: Yeah, they definitely do. I think bringing the kind of historical perspective that I've tried to outline in this book suggests that there are a myriad of ways to live and experience what being Jewish means, and that There are multiple established contexts in which that intersection of Jewish and LGBTQ identity has already been worked through in some way. So it presents us with not just one, but actually with many different living examples of how people have lived in that intersection without being pulled apart by this contradiction that we assume, you know, is going to structure their lives. Actually, here's all of these examples that show that that didn't happen. Like, actually, people figured out what that meant for them and that they came up with different answers. That's true, you know, from the historical side. And the other way is also true, you know, I would say bringing our contemporary lenses of the diversity of experiences that we see you know in our world today i think it's really important to to not try and pin down something in the past as being restricted to like pinning it and restricting it to only relating to one particular contemporary identity so to give you an example you know there are there are a number of Of stories in this book of people who were born and raised as women and who chose to live partially or fully for some amount of time of their lives, sometimes all of their lives, as men. So, you know, with men's names, wearing male clothing. Now, some people would say these are or these were butch lesbians who had to find some way of living their truth in the world and pursuing romantic relationships with women. And the only option for them at that time was to live as men. And so that's what they did. But at their core, essentially, they really are lesbians. And other people might want to say, okay, well, you know, these are actually trans men. These are men. It is wrong to speak of them as having been women at any stage. And, you know, We can only speak about them in the context of trans male history. And other people might want to say, these are non-binary people. And some people might want to say, these are, you know, genderqueer people. I think what we can do best today is say, this historical moment speaks at the same time to all of these contemporary experiences without pinning it to any one or the other, but to say, we see reflections and resonances of all of these different contemporary moments sort of refracted through this
0: single historical piece in the past. What do we gain from that perspective?
1: Well, I think it it helps us break out of some of these boxes that we find ourselves in you know, and once we realize that maybe gender has not been the concrete box that we thought it was, the same is true of Jewishness. I have a a colleague who's an anthropologist who studies uh, hijra in India, who are a community of people that she refers to as trans women, even though it's not an exact analogy. But she says, look, if I go to a conference and I say I'm presenting about hijra trans women in contemporary india people say you can't do that you can't talk about you can't apply the paradigm of trans woman to something that is not a native term that's not a way of understanding it but she says but if i were to say okay i'm going to present about women In contemporary India, nobody says, you can't do that. You can't talk about women as a category in India. They don't even have the word woman. They have, you know, whatever the Hindi word for woman is. So it helps us realize, wait a second. Actually, all of these categories are loose umbrella conglomerates that we just, for convenience, use a shorthand that links all of these phenomena. Like, obviously, what it means to be a woman in 21st century America is different than what it means to be a woman in 19th century India or in 15th century uh, Germany or in 6th century Babylonia, just like what it means to be Jewish is different in all of those places. So, you know, when when I talk about my book, you know, and it says an anthology of queer Jewish texts, people often say to me, how can you use the word queer to describe these texts? Nobody ever says, how can you use the word Jewish to describe these texts, even though the word Jewish is just as equally uh, slippery, you know, to try and pin down, well, well, what it means to be Jewish in 21st century America is different than what it means to be Jewish in 15th century Spain or in 6th century Babylonia. But we say, oh, we'll just call this, all of this stuff Jewish. You know, we'll agree to use this umbrella term here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think part of what you're getting into here is this question of terminology and anachronism. I think we tend to have these conversations in academic circles, you know, about a lot of things, right? Can you call anti-Jewish violence in medieval Spain anti-Semitism? Right? You know, anything before 1879, people will get you know all up in arms if you use the term anti-Semitism. But I think that part of what you're saying here is that even the term Jew can be anachronistic, right? Because think about even nineteenth century America. Jews used the term Israelite to talk about themselves? Is it wrong to call them Jews? I think that to some extent these debates about terminology are important to have. They are useful and relevant, but to some extent also they don't matter so much. Because we need to use the terms and the tools that we have at our disposal to understand the past. And if that means using a term that they didn't use themselves, so be it.
1: Right. And I think we understand that implicitly in Jewish studies. But I think we don't always extend that assumption to LGBTQ history. Meaning we all understand, yes, we, we're going to have to use the term Jewish, even though, you know, we recognize that it's not 100% accurate and it's certainly anachronistic in some contexts. And, you know, we, we say, okay, fine, but we're going to use it anyway, because we have to use some kind of terminology. But historically, like, you know, up until the last few decades, there's been a resistance, I think, to say, okay, well, you know, this example of Uh, a medieval Jewish person, you know, talking about how much they want to have a relationship with another man, we say, oh, well, we can't call that homosexuality. We can't call that gay identity. We can't call that homoeroticism, you know, because it's anachronistic. So then we, so then we don't talk about it. So then we just leave it out of the conversation and then it becomes marginalized instead of saying, okay, look, we recognize that we're going to have to have some kind of anachronistic uh, approach, but we we have to be able to talk about phenomena that share, you know, this kind of shared experience. We have to we have to find some kind of terminology to talk about it.
0: Yeah, well, I think that part of what's going on here um, that you're describing here is these debates about anachronism. For instance, the way in which they tend to elide this history and erase it, because the search for the right term, right, or or, or the search for the right way to talk about it has the practical effect of erasing this from the history in the same way the genre can. I mean, I think that part of what is interesting about the sources that you have in the book is that you are reframing the genre. For instance, you talked about instances, whether we're talking about in the Talmud, in poetry, in other things, uh, where there are descriptions of women who are dressing as men or, you know, all sorts of other configurations of gender and sexuality and sometimes these things are written off as hypothetical, right? Or sometimes a text is, is considered as a parody. I'm thinking here, for instance, of Benjamin Third, right? Uh, you know, the 19th century, you know, novella, or even like, I mean, this isn't even in the book, um, but like Yentl, for instance. There's a question of how these texts are understood, and the question of terminology, the question of genre, these seem like academic issues, right? But they have these implications, they have these real-world ramifications in terms of whether or not we take this issue seriously or if we think about it as fictional or hypothetical or whatever?
1: First of all, absolutely. Something I tried to do in this book, and again, I think it's my own bias based on how I've been trained as a social historian, but I don't really see or I, I tried not to impose any kind of hierarchy of what kind of text is more or less Jewish. I organize the texts chronologically, and so you're going to find a rabbinic responsum next to a poem, next to a Yiddish newspaper report, next to, you know, a work of French literature, next to some memo from a Jewish organization. Those are all equal ways of getting a Jewish experience to me. Now, in some circles, that's a kind of heretical position. I I want to acknowledge there are people who say, look, what Maimonides says about Jewishness is definitive. And what some random Yiddish journalist says is not definitive. That's not the position I'm coming from. So for me, it's really important. and And it's a corrective. It's actually an explicit corrective to the kinds of narratives that result when we only take into account, let's say, a male, rabbinic, literate, Eastern European slash American elite, you know, 1% of Jewish history, when that becomes the definitive kind of text that allows us to write Jewish history, we, we erase so many other kinds of voices. And so my collection of a diversity, as diverse a selection of genres as possible is a way to include as many diverse voices as possible. You know, I wanted to make sure, for example, I wanted, really wanted there to be as many women's voices as possible in this book. And if I restricted it to only texts that were written in rabbinic Hebrew, then I would not be able to find a lot of women's voices. So I had to say, you know, I, I want to prioritize a diversity of voices.
0: And one other thing that I want to talk about here is the audience for the book. You know, who do you see as the the readership for this book? Who do you want to reach with these sources and with this message, you know, and this set of issues?
1: I think there are a lot of different audiences for this book. Obviously, uh, my kind of imagined reader was usually an academic Jewish historian, but I often imagined a different kind of audience. I think that this book is a way into Jewish history for interested lay people, let's say, who are not professional historians. I think what I try to do very hard in this book is digest a lot of academic scholarship on Jewish history and kind of chew it up and present it in ways that are accessible to a more general public. You know, a lot of people might pick it up because it has the word queer on the cover. And that's what they're looking for. But then they discover while they're reading about, you know, Sephardi lesbians in the Ottoman Empire, or about medieval homoerotic poetry, or about, um, you know, gay activists in early 20th century Germany, that they discover, wait, this is actually really interesting. I didn't know about Jewish women in uh, the Ottoman Empire, or I don't really know much about medieval Spain, or I don't really know much about Jewish life in in the early twentieth century in in Europe, and that that might spark uh, an interest in understanding and and thinking more deeply about the complexities of the past in general. It's kind of like a window, you know. If if this is the the invitation for them to come to the window, then I I hope that they look through it and and see all kinds of new things.
0: What has been the response to this book?
1: The response has been very positive. A lot of people have adopted it in, in the academic world in, in courses. I know it's been used by uh, professors and, and graduate students who are teaching. And, and what I'm really glad to see, which is what I hoped for, is that it's not just being used in classes about gender and sexuality, but in courses on American Jewish history or courses on you know, Jewish life in the Islamic world or you know, courses in general Jewish history that are incorporating the material, which is really exciting. You know, My hope is that it inspires other kinds of engagement with the material, not just academic engagement. One of the stories in the book is an, an account of an Algerian uh, Jew living in France who was the proprietor of a gay bar in, in the early 20th century, in the first century of the 20th century. And I was contacted by a filmmaker in Israel who identifies as a member of the LGBTQ community and is of North African uh, French uh, descent and was so moved by this story that they wanted to make a film about this person, Moïse Zekri. So, you know, I think that kind of thing is exciting to me. And there's a lot of rich, exciting ways that this material could be translated into other kinds of expression outside of the academic settings. I've seen some mean things that people say about it on the internet. But for the most part, I think it's been met with what I hoped it would be met with, which is a sense of excitement to continue exploring what queer Jewish history includes and what it can be and and what it means. So
0: speaking for myself, I'm definitely within the realm of you know, scholars you know, picking up this book. And I think that one of the important things about this is that it's a teaching tool. This is something that You wrote very briefly about how this volume um, actually got its start when you were bringing together sources for a class that you were teaching. So I guess there are two questions here that I'm interested in. Um, The first one is, can you say a bit about this process of the origin of the book? Uh, And the challenge that you faced as somebody trying to teach about this set of issues and there really wasn't a collection of sources that were available. Uh, And then the second thing is, how is it that having these sources available changes the calculus for teaching about the Jewish past. What is going on here from a teaching perspective, both in terms of the origin of this book from your own needs as a teacher, right, as, as an instructor, and then the way in which having these kinds of sources available um, makes it possible to teach new kinds of Jewish history?
1: I found that there was not any resource that, that collected these primary sources in one place. Across the breadth of genre and of Jewish history, in the way that I was looking for. So, you know, there's been lots of work in the last decades, um, but it's either, you know, only about, you know, homosexuality in Jewish law, so it's narrowed by genre, or it's a study of gender in Talmud and rabbinic literature, so it's, it's restricted by chronology. And even within those collections, so often the focus is on discussion and analysis, which is obviously hugely important, but the primary sources themselves, you know, are only cited and referred to in a footnote and you don't actually get the primary text themselves. And as I said, what I find so powerful as a teacher is to work through the primary sources directly with the students and to model asking questions, looking for evidence in the text and you know discovering what questions remain unanswered working through that process with a primary text with students is incredibly rewarding for me you know often i wanted to do that with these texts and i couldn't find any collection that that had what i wanted so i thought well uh, i'll just put together what i what i need for myself and it grew and it grew and it grew until it became this book What I was surprised by was actually just how many sources there were, which were sort of just behind the surface. In other words, they had been published, but not in English translation, or they had been discussed in a footnote, but the full text had never been published, or they were, you know, digitized, but you know, you had to like look for them within a a database. So it actually wasn't as difficult as I feared initially. And obviously some get some texts were very difficult to get a hold of. But I was surprised by how many texts were there just under the surface, but not accessible to somebody who was looking for them, who wasn't coming from within the discipline. So that was a huge challenge. And that I felt like if there's a gift that I can give here, it's to do that work of combing through the footnotes, finding the citations, getting the original sources, and putting them in an accessible form that people can just pick up the book themselves and read it. As a teacher, what I've tried to do is present the text, first of all, with a kind of introductory set of ideas, you know, giving some historical background, asking some questions that might lead us in the direction of how we could think about this text to give people a starting place if they're not familiar with this genre or they're not familiar with the context or they're not familiar with reading this type of source, to give them something to work with. And, of course, each source is followed by a bibliography for further reading of, you know, if you want to get a sense of how other scholars have grappled with this text, you know, you can you can do that. Um, but when I was selecting texts, I tried very hard. One of my criteria was precisely, as you say, I wanted a text that was engaging enough that on the first reading, someone without an extensive background would be able to find something interesting in this text. So it had to be the right length, not too short, but not too long. There were texts that I left out of this anthology because I felt like in order for an educated layperson to understand what I find interesting about this text, I would need to preface it with a discussion that's longer than the text itself. There were some, you know, Kabbalistic passages, which are very interesting. I mean, I barely understand them. And in order to present them in an accessible form for an undergraduate student, I would need one or two pages of explanatory text just for one paragraph of the Zohar. And to me, that felt like an inappropriate balance for what I wanted to do in this book. So I felt it was important for me to choose texts which were stories or that had narrative that was exciting, or if they were legal texts, to be engaging enough, or interesting enough, or or challenging enough to maintain interest for the duration of the reading. You know, which I know is always a challenge for us uh, as instructors. So, you know, some of these texts are, you know, very very interesting. Some of them, you know, are less interesting. I'll acknowledge. Um, but my hope is that all of them could produce a vibrant discussion, even with people who are coming to the text with with no background. And I've done it. I've, I've taken this book on the road and I've taught with it in a variety of settings. And all of the texts that I've chosen, I always am pleasantly surprised by the richness of the discussion that comes out with anybody.
0: I want to latch on to something that you were just talking about, which is this process of making history accessible. And part of what we're doing on this podcast and in this conversation is thinking about how we can make scholarship accessible to a broader public, a broader public of scholars, a broader public in general. What do you think is the significance here of taking things that are just out of reach, whether that's for linguistic reasons or because it's not published or because uh, it's a difficult text to get a hold of? What do you think is the significance? Why does it matter to make this kind of history accessible?
1: If you are trying to understand yourself where you fit in the world, where you fit in, in your history, where you fit in your community. And you have a sense that your history has been marginalized or erased or you know, pushed out of the historical narrative. And then you discover, but there is some history that has survived. There is something that grants me, you know, a hook, you know, something to to hold on to. And then it's out of your reach. It's so painful. It can be incredibly uh, painful to feel like you have to fight to reclaim your own past. So, you know, it matters because it is a corrective for, you know, what has happened for centuries. It's something that we all deserve to have access to our history. To use a Jewish term, it's a tikkun, it's a repair, it's a righting of a wrong to be able to make something accessible to the people who are the rightful inheritors of it.
0: Obviously, this book uh, is really significant, it's really important, and it's really just an exciting milestone to see it you know, come out and and to actually hold it in my hands. But of course, it's not the entirety of what you do. I believe you're working on a book um, on Sephardic culture in the early modern period so i was wondering if maybe you could say a quick word about that and perhaps how that line of inquiry ties in with this broader set of issues that you've dealt with in this book about gender and sexuality uh, throughout jewish history when you're focusing on a more limited period and place
1: some of the common drives that motivated the this book, A Rainbow Thread, are still true in in my other academic work, which is to say I'm interested in recovering voices from the margins, and I'm interested in broadening our vision of what we think of when we think of the Jewish past. And when we talk about Jewish history, and when we talk about, you know, who and where and what is Jewish history, I've always been interested in answers that are Outside of what we kind of default to as what's at the core of um, Judaism. And so, you know, my interest in Jewish communities of the Islamic world and Jews who were writing and thinking and working in Judeo Arabic or in uh, other languages outside of the kind of core, you know, uh, default that we think of, I I think that stems from the same impulse to see. A more honest and more accurate reflection of the true breadth of what being Jewish has meant, you know over the the kind of the big picture, so in that sense, I think there is a commonality that all of my different projects, whether they're focused on different areas of Jewish life, share an interest in this rethinking our assumptions and challenging our assumptions of what the Jewish experience has been. So I think that would be the, the, the thread that ties them together,
0: so to speak. Well, thank you, Noam, so much. This has been, I think, a really, really important conversation, really fascinating one. I just want to thank you for joining me for this.
1: Great, thank you, Jason. Thank you for the work that you're doing with this podcast. I think it's really uh, an important uh, service and I'm honored to contribute my voice to, to the, the big conversation that you're hosting here.
0: Well, thank you, that means a lot. And thanks to you for listening into this conversation with Noam Siena about his book, A Rainbow Thread. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.